Our Bible reading this morning is from Leviticus chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse 49. If any clothing is contaminated with mildew, any woolen or linen clothing, any woven or knitted material of linen or wool, any leather or anything made of leather, and if the contamination in the clothing or leather or woven or knitted material or any leather article is greenish or reddish, it is a spreading mildew and must be shown to the priest. The priest is to examine the mildew and isolate the affected article for seven days. On the seventh day he is to examine it and if the mildew has spread in the clothing or the woven or knitted material or the leather, whatever its use, it is a destructive mildew. The article is unclean. He must burn up the clothing or the woven or knitted material of wool or linen or any leather article that has the contamination in it because the mildew is destructive. The article must be burned up. But if, when the priest examines it, the mildew has not spread in the clothing or the woven or knitted material or the leather article, he shall order that the contaminated article be washed. Then he is to isolate it for another seven days. After the affected article has been washed, the priest is to examine it, and if the mildew has not changed its appearance, even though it has not spread, it is unclean. Burn it with fire, whether the mildew has affected one side or the other. A few years back in the United States, there was a uh, radio talkback host by the name of Laura Schlesinger. Uh, She created a bit of a furor when she said that homosexuality was wrong because the book of Leviticus said so. Well, it wasn't too long before all of the responses started flooding in and one person actually wrote an open letter to Dr Laura and posted it on the internet. It was a little tongue-in-cheek. Let me read some of the letter for you. Dear Dr Laura, Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from you and I try to share my knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend a homosexual lifestyle, for example, I remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states that it is an abomination, end of debate. I do need some advice, however, regarding some more of the, some of the specific laws and how best to follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, it creates a pleasing odour to the Lord, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9. The problem is my neighbours. They claim the odour is not pleasing to them. How do I deal with this? Leviticus 25.44 states that I may buy slaves from the nations around us. A friend of mine claims that applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify? I have a neighbour who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 verse 2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? I know you have studied these things extensively, so I am confident that you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. A fan. Now, we can have a laugh at the letter... But what are we supposed to make of these laws in the book of Leviticus? And as Christians, are we in any way obliged to keep them? Do those laws still stand today? 
Now, we've been looking at Leviticus over these past few weeks and we've divided it up into different sections or the book naturally divides itself into these sections. We began by looking at the ritual chapters, the chapters dealing with the sacrifices that were to be made, chapters 1 to 7 and then right at the end, chapters 23 to 27. And then we looked at the laws related to the priesthood in chapters 8 to 10 and also in 21 and 22. Well, today we come to... uh, a pretty wide range of laws in this section uh, in 11 to 15 and 18 to 22. It deals with everything from dealing with mildew, as we heard from our Bible reading, right to right through to the issue of who it is that you can and can't have a sexual relationship with. But it all fits together under that heading of purity, moral and physical purity that is required from God's people. But before we jump into the details of Leviticus, it's important to be to understand what it is that Leviticus means when it talks about purity or, or when it talks about clean and unclean. Many of the laws that we see in here relate to what is clean and what is unclean. Things can uh, become ceremonially unclean and people can become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, which means that they're unable to be in contact with others in their community and most certainly unable to draw near to God. But these purity laws, they're really designed to drive home the holiness and the purity of God. And for the people of Israel, they know that to come into his presence, to be in a relationship with a holy and pure God, well, they need to be holy and pure, physically and morally. So, for example, if you come in contact with a dead body, you become unclean. If you uh, eat certain foods, you become unclean. If you have a skin condition, you become unclean. Now, Being unclean isn't the same thing as being sinful. It's not a matter of needing forgiveness. But if you are unclean, there is a procedure that you need to go through to make yourself clean again. Again, these rules served as a reminder to the people of Israel of what their God is like, that he is a pure God, that he's without fault, there is no evil, there is no impurity in him. And to live in a relationship with that God, well, it means that we need to be morally and physically pure. Now, when you reach the pages of the Old Testament, we see Jesus do something that would have been completely unthinkable in his time. He comes in contact with people who are unclean, intentionally. He goes out of his way to touch people who are unclean or allow himself to be touched by people who are unclean. But rather than Jesus becoming unclean as a result of that, the people become clean and they're healed. Often when Jesus heals people, he sends them off to the to the temple to present themselves to the priests because that's what the book of Leviticus required. And they were to show that they had been completely made clean by what it is that Jesus has done. Now, those miracles show us something about who Jesus is, but they also show us something about the new covenant, the new order that Jesus has come to bring in. Jesus came to deal with our impurity, our uncleanness. Jesus is the one who can make 
us clean. Jesus is the one who can remove all barriers between us and God permanently. Jesus is the one who can enable us to have a complete relationship with God. If you've got your Bible there, you can open it up to Leviticus chapter 8. Um, oh, sorry, chapter 11. We're dealing with uh, some of the food laws that we actually have in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus goes into pretty extensive detail about which animals and birds and fish were considered to be unclean, which things you can and can't eat. Now, bad news is prawns and bacon are off the menu. Good news is you can eat as many grasshoppers as you like. But again, what happens when Jesus comes? All of that changes. It's almost a bit of a throwaway line in Mark's gospel, but Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about what's clean and what's unclean. And this is what we're told from Mark's gospel. Jesus says to them, are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And look at the little editorial comment from Mark. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Bacon and prawns are now back on the menu. All of those food laws that we read in the book of Leviticus, in that one little comment, we're told that Jesus says that those rules no longer apply. That was part of the old covenant. Now he declares all food to be clean. And then there's that incident in the book of Acts where Do you remember Peter's given that vision, the unclean animals being lowered down on a sheet and God says to Peter, eat. And Peter says, oh, I couldn't do that. They're unclean. And God says, if I say they're clean, they're clean and you eat. Now, you will be pleased to know that um, when Jesus declared all food clean, he did say that Brussels sprouts, tripe and liver are still on the unclean list. I can't remember exactly where he said that, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Now, can I get you to turn over to chapter 18? This is the chapter that's dealing with purity, particularly dealing with sexual purity. This is the chapter that's uh, featured in a lot of discussion today, in, from, especially from people like Dr. Laura. Now, while the word marry may not actually be mentioned in this chapter, it's pretty clear that it's not just about who you can and can't have sex with. It's about who you can and can't enter into a lasting union with. But I want you to notice what it says right at the very beginning of the chapter. Chapter 18, starting at verse number 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Cana where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. These laws were given to Israel. They weren't given to the nations around them. Israel were not to live like the other nations around them. They were not to live like the people in Egypt where they'd come from and they are not to live like the people living in the land of Cana where they're going to. God expects that people will live the way that he intended them to live. He expects that his people will take him seriously, that their lives will be different from the nations around them. But it's important to note there's no mandate here 
for the Israelites to force their views onto the other nations around them. Now, in this chapter, we're actually given 15 different relationships where sexual activity was prohibited. Here are those 15 15 relationships with your mother, your stepmother, your brother or sister. One of the things that amuses me is that people want to criticise the book of Leviticus when it comes to this question of same-sex relationships. That's just one of 15 that are mentioned in this chapter. And of the other 14 prohibited relationships, half of them are actually law in this country and the other half of them, I think just about everyone would, would agree, they're pretty much common sense. So it's really just one of the views about sex and relationships that people want to choose out of this chapter in Leviticus. But again, we need to remember the people of Israel didn't have a mandate to tell every other country around them how to live. This is how God wants his people, Israel, to live. There's no doubt that attitudes about sex and relationships change in our society. You only need to go back through history to see that. Uh, There's waves that keep coming and moving through our history. You've only got to go and look at the Greek or the Roman empires. Uh, Things that were considered normal and acceptable back then would even still be considered wrong today. We shouldn't be surprised that attitudes are going to change about sex and relationships. Although I do have to confess, sometimes I do get a little bit stunned by it. Uh, I was listening to a morning radio show the other morning on on, uh, just before nine o'clock and the topic for discussion was inappropriate times to say, I love you. Okay, so that was the topic that they had. All of these callers were ringing in and talking about the different inappropriate times. But one caller rang in and he said that he was on his fourth date with a girl and he stressed that he hardly knew this girl at all. Uh, It was only the fourth time that they had ever spent any time together. They wound up in bed and while they were having sex, she came out with the words, I love you. Now, the caller and the hosts of the show both expressed their complete shock at this. Not shocked that they were in bed together on only their fourth date, that seemed perfectly normal and acceptable. Not shocked that he was in bed with a girl that he admitted that he barely knew her, no shock around that. It was shock that she'd actually muttered the words, I love you. Now, maybe I'm just getting old. I I mean, I am a grandfather now, for goodness sake, but... (laughs) But it seemed very strange to me and they asked the caller how he dealt with this. He said he went home and never called her again. So what attitude should we as the followers of Jesus have when it comes to sex and relationships? Well, I want to say the short answer is the one God wants us to. I mean, Jesus is very clear about marriage. He makes the point that things haven't changed since creation, that God had a plan and a purpose when he created this world. And this is what Jesus says. But at the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And can I say, that has been the view virtually universally for the whole of human history. It's really only in this little window that we've moved into now that people would like to suggest that there are other views and alternative views. 
The census takes place this coming Tuesday night. Uh, There's no doubt that the number of people who align themselves with Christianity as their religion will drop from the last time the census was, was made. Our society in Australia is becoming less and less Christian. And we shouldn't be surprised if that is reflected in the attitudes that we see around us. And we shouldn't be surprised if it's reflected in the laws that are passed in our country as well. I want to say that there are actually far more dangerous attitudes in our society than our attitudes about same-sex marriage. I think the greed that we see in our society does far greater harm in our world than anything else that we could point to. And Jesus spoke at length about greed. The oppression and injustice that we see in our world harms countless lives and families right around our world. And around our world, people suffer and die as a result of the attitudes that we have when it comes to this issue of greed and our willingness to overlook the injustice that we see in our world. So what's the point of all of these laws in Leviticus and what are we supposed to do with them? Well, I think part of the purpose of these laws for the people of Israel was to make them distinct and different, to make them stand out from the other nations around them. Rules about what they can and can't eat, rules about what length their hair was, rules about wearing two different sorts of cloth. There seems to be no intrinsic value to these laws, no benefit from obeying them and nothing wrong would happen if you didn't obey them except you'd be disobeying God. They're not issues of right and wrong or good and evil, a whole lot of these laws. It was just how God told his people he wanted them to live. And their faithfulness would be expressed by their willingness to obey those laws. He wanted them to know that they were different from the nations around them. And sometimes that difference would simply be expressed by the way that they wore their hair or the clothes that they wore. Now, while those laws belong to Israel and the old covenant as followers of Jesus... There's a sense in which God still wants us to be distinct and different, to not just adopt all of the attitudes of our society, not to be like everybody else around us, but to distinctively be God's people. One of the things that becomes obvious when you read through the laws in Leviticus is that God is concerned about every aspect of our lives. He cares about our attitudes and he cares about our actions. He's concerned about our sexual relationships, but he's also concerned about us being honest and fair in our business dealings. He wants us to love our neighbours. He wants us to be concerned for widows and orphans and those in need in our society. I mean, it's crystal clear from Leviticus that God is concerned about every aspect of our lives, how we parent, how we treat foreigners, how we do business, what we eat. And while Jesus comes to bring a new covenant, it's a covenant where God is still concerned about every detail of our lives. But there's one more thing that we see in Leviticus. We see God's grace in Leviticus. Now that may seem a little strange that we actually see God's grace in a whole bunch of laws, but we do. What's stressed repeatedly throughout Leviticus is that God has rescued these people from it, from Egypt. 
He's rescued them from captivity. He's rescued them from slavery. He's rescued them from cruelty and oppression. And he's taking them to the land that he will give them. They were freed by God to be his people and to enjoy a relationship with him. The life that Israel have with God is not just another form of slavery. And obedience to the law wasn't about earning God's favour. Obedience was about responding to God's grace. Their lives were to reflect God's character. And if that's true in the book of Leviticus, then the Bible says it's even more true when it comes to us and the new covenant and the relationship that we have with God through Jesus. Jesus has rescued us not from slavery in Egypt. He's rescued us from slavery to sin. And Jesus has saved us from sin and death. We've been set free from those things to enjoy a relationship with God. What God wants from us is a life that reflects that we're in that relationship with him. That we live a life that reflects God's character and God's grace to us in Jesus. God has loved us, so we should love others. God has forgiven us, so we should be ready to forgive others. God has been generous to us, so we ought to be generous to others. The better we understand what God has done for us in Jesus, the better we can reflect his character in our lives.